Hi, everyone. Susie O here. Just want to let all of you know that the certificates of deposit at Alliant Credit Union are now at, for a six-month CD, 5%, a 12- to 17-month CD, 5.15%, and an 18- to 23-month CD, 4.90%. And for those amounts of $75,000 or more, just add on 0.5% to those rates. Go to myalliant.com and check it out. Eighteenth, two 2021. And guess what? KT is back <laughs> for Ask Wait KT a minute. and Susie Finally. Anything. Finally, KT is back in the seat in the studio. I feel like I'm I'm a stranger in here, Susie. KT, it was a week and a half that you weren't in here. I feel like I'm strange. I feel like I'm I'm not used to my little seat and my earphones and my Wait, I just have to tell everybody so. KT, I got this little stool for KT. And it was $25. Perfect. Right? Perfect. And KT sits on that. And so I'm looking at her on this little stool. And I go, you really like that little stool? Wait, the reason that this is funny for Susie is that we've gone through maybe <laughs> five or six different chairs, all ergonomically and none of correct. Them <laughs> and we've purchased so many different chairs for Susie to find a comfort level as she sits in front of her mic. But me, I just like my little folding chair or now my little stool. Perfect. Perfect. Anyway, We'll get a chair for me one day that works. Maybe it's just my body, Katie. Maybe it has nothing to do with the chair. Think okay, you don't like to sit. You're a lounge lizard. I'm a lounge lizard, right? If I could do this from leaning in my bed, I would. However, welcome everybody. Um, as I was starting to say, this is the Ask KT and Susie Anything podcast. And this is where if you have a question, just write in to Ask Susie Podcast, that's S-U-Z-E, at gmail.com. And if your email is chosen, your question is chosen, we will read and answer it on the air just like we do right now. But every once in a while, I do respond to you personally. I'm so excited. You know why, Katie? You know what today is? Today is your special date. Yeah, I have a date this afternoon, actually almost this evening, with William Shatner, and he's interviewing me to ask me questions for his show. So I'm so excited. Oh my goodness. And when that show actually airs, we'll make sure you all know, know about it because it's going to be fun. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you two talk about. Okay. So are you ready? Let's get to these questions. They've been piling stack, up, everybody. Quite a stack of questions. And the first one is from Donna. Hello, Susie and KT. I have a general question regarding finances. My partner and I plan to get married in May 2022, and I would like your opinion on household expense contributions. 
I make $325,000 a year. My partner earns $125,000. As far as Susie's concerned, would this indicate that I should pay 62% of all bills? What about luxuries like vacations, home improvement expenses, and eating out, etc.? Thank you. That's from Donna. So Donna, it's hard for me to answer the question is the exact percentage that you should pay, but you should first add up all of your household expenses, whatever that may be, add up your take-home income and your partner's take-home income, because you don't say here what that is. You just say what you earn. What's important is what you take home, add those two figures together and then divide that figure into your joint household expenses. And that is the percentage that each one of you pays. However, the real question is here, what about luxuries like vacations, home improvements, expenses, and eating out? Katie, what would you tell Donna? Donna, it, you're married. It doesn't matter. Well, she's Soon. going to get married. Okay. So you're going to get married before you get married and after you're married. It doesn't really matter. Susie and I don't look at each other and say, oh, well, this week you buy dinner because you make more money than me. And next week I'll pay for half of the." We don't do that. We just go out. <laughs> right. So here, here's the thing I would tell you, Donna, is this. If you really love the person that you're about to marry, if you really trust this person, then does it really matter? You make seriously a whole lot more money, almost $200,000 a year more than this person. Is it really going to kill you that if you paid for dinners, if you paid for vacations, if you did things like that, it won't kill you. So it's you work that out between the two of you, but I do think it's important that you do pay percentage-wise into your joint mandatory expenses so that it feels equal. One really important thing I just want to say, Donna, is that just because you make more money in this relationship does not mean you have more power. Be very careful because without you even knowing it, you could adopt that attitude. You can say little things. You can do little things like, wait a minute, I'm the one who's paying for most of the things here. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. One of the reasons, and I believe this, that KT and I now have lasted so fabulously over these more, over these over more, 20 years. more than 20 years yeah. now, is that it wasn't like that. It wasn't like, but I did this, I did that, I make more money. So just know, love this person up, always be open with them with money, and treat your money, even though it may be in separate accounts, as if it is both of your monies. However, with that said, what is the one word I'm going to give them advice on, KT, that they should both get? Uh, she's looking at me. Share. Prenup. Prenup. Oh, prenup. Get a prenup. Get a prenup. Okay. Next question is from Mary. Hi, Susie and KT. I have $30,000 in my Roth IRA. It's just sitting there. It's not invested in anything. Then she said, Vanguard, I had transferred from my 401k to the rollover Roth IRA to manage it myself. I have my own business. You're doing a good job managing it. Let's letting it sit there. You're just sitting just there. letting it sit there. That's what's called good I, management. <laughs> I have my own business and can start investing more. 
My husband and I have everything paid off, cars, house, no debt. So what she's asking is, can you give her some advice as to where she should place this money (laughs) in her Vanguard account? She said, at the age of 61, it's not much, but it's all I have. My husband is a retired school teacher and gets his pension every month. Yeah. Here's what I would say, my dear Mary, is there's a reason why you have not invested that $30,000. And while you may think that $30,000 is not much, are you kidding me? That is not only something, that is a serious amount of money, a serious amount of money. And the day that you start thinking $30,000 isn't much, we have problems. We have problems. So that's the first thing. Yes, I could tell you you're in Vanguard. I would be dollar cost averaging, which means taking an amount of money every single month and putting it into the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index ETF. Symbol is VTI. However, you have to be willing to watch that $30,000 possibly go down to 28, 25, to 20, and maybe again back up again. If you don't have what it takes to do that, then I'm not exactly sure what you should be doing at this point in time. Obviously, on Sunday, maybe you heard me say that last Sunday, I'm going to be talking about series I bonds, again, and versus tips, that might be something that you want to look into as well. But my recommendation would be the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index ETF. But with that said, what I want everybody to know is that we've been going up, we've been going up, we've been going up, We have inflation rearing its head more than it has in 30 years. We have a supply and a demand, you know, absolute problem with materials being locked up in the ports and everything. Eventually, if the feds decide that they need to raise interest rates in order to stop this inflation, that will not bode well for the stock market. So we may enter a stock market in six months or a year or sometime where it will absolutely start to go down. And if that happens, that's why I want you to dollar cost average. But remember, when you invest in the market, you need to have at least five to 10 years before you want to touch this money. You don't want to put money in the market that you need in under three to five years. All right, everybody. All right. Next question, KT. Okay. This is from Marilyn Green. And Susie, this is about student loan forgiveness. So Marilyn's asking, I was listening to an early episode of Ask Susie where a listener stated that her $44,000 of private student loans were forgiven, but she later learned that the forgiven amount was taxable and she owes $14,000. I currently work for an employer that qualifies me for PSLF. She's looking at me. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah public student loan forgiveness. Okay. And I have been looking. <laughs> I look at Susie like, okay, fill in the blank. PSLF, public student loan forgiveness. That's good, Katie. And I have been looking good, forward to the day that those loans are forgiven, but I'm now wondering if it would be best for me to pay the debt as my annual income is $70,000 and my AGI is approximately 55,000. Thus, my annual income exceeds my possible debt forgiveness. 
of 29,000. Stop, 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 stop. You, girlfriend, Marilyn, you're just, you've gotten yourself into the weeds here and you're making things 10 times more complicated than it needs to be. First, why did the caller who called in, who had $44,000 of private student loans, private student loans are the keys here, that were forgiven, but then she learned that she had to pay taxes on that. You can have a student loan, and it could be under the income-based repayment method, whether it's a private student loan or a direct loan or whatever it is. And if your loan ends up being forgiven, so you've been paying a small amount of money on it for 20 or 25 years, and at the end of that period of time, your loan is forgiven, then you will still owe income taxes on the amount of money that was forgiven a public student loan forgiveness program is very different. That's where you are in a program working for a nonprofit, and hopefully you have direct student loans. Private loans will not qualify you for this, but if you have direct student loans, so check it out, then absolutely continue to do it. So if you are in an income-based repayment program within an organization that you work for, and it qualifies for a PSLF, and you are in a direct student loan, just keep doing it. Because in 10 years, when that loan is forgiven, you will not owe income taxes on it. So all this stuff about your AGI and your things like that, oh, please throw that out of that little head of yours (laughs) and just stay doing exactly what you're doing. But check it and make sure that you have direct loans that qualify. All right. That was a great answer. I didn't know that. Of course you did. You just forgot. Okay. (laughs) This is from Tara. Hi, Susie and KT. I love your podcast. I'm sure together we can really improve my financial position. For years, I have contributed to the 401k at work. And as I left employers, I transferred everything into a contributory IRA. I would now like to strategically convert positions to my Roth over the next 10 years. I have about 400000 in the traditional and 15000 in my Roth. Is it worth doing this conversion with a 10% penalty on top of income tax, or should I just build up my Roth? Am I allowed to wait until I'm 59 and make my mandatory distributions and put them in a Roth? All of you are getting so mixed up. What is wrong with all of you? She's got 20 more years before she retires. But that's not the point. It's like, Tara, you need to listen. When I do a podcast, you need to listen very, very closely to what I say, not what you think I said. So you have to understand the difference. First of all, when you convert from a taxable IRA, a traditional IRA, whether it's a rollover, a contributory, it does not matter, into a Roth, there is no 10% penalty. So where you got that is beyond me. The only thing that happens is you owe ordinary income taxes on it. You say you have $400,000 in your traditional IRA, only $15,000 in your Roth. So you should contact a CPA and figure out, does it make sense for you in your particular financial situation, depending on your income, 
Should you convert any of this money right now from your traditional to a Roth or not? So they're the ones who will absolutely tell you if it's worth doing this conversion, but it's not with a 10% penalty on top of income tax. Got that? It's just income tax. Also, you say, should I start building up my Roth? Of course you should. There's nothing that keeps you if you qualify for it income-wise. And by the way, in 2022, the AGI limits are going to go up for Roth IRAs. But I'll do that in another um, podcast. But what's important is for you to understand that, of course, you should contribute to your Roth IRA if you qualify for it. Converting, not converting makes no difference. You should always if you qualify, contribute up to the point of the max in a Roth IRA. Why are you looking at me like that? Oh, because you said up to the point of the max, and I always hear you say up to the point of the match, which is different. That's different. That's traditional. Because she's right. giving me this look with these cute little eyes of hers. No, I, I don't get cute. They're just wide. I like, what did she just say? All right, here you go. This next one's from Margaret. Margaret, First, and when I read this, I said, wow, Susie's going to really applaud you on the first sentence or the first paragraph. Then she's going to slap your wrist really hard. So get ready, Margaret. <laughs> it said, happy holidays, Katie and Susie. I found your podcast during the beginning of the pandemic, and I haven't missed a show since. Yay! Yay! But here's why you're going to get a, a big applause, not because of that, because of this. Thank you to Alliant Credit Union and your affiliation with them. I've never been a saver, but this year I started with your Alliant Savings Plan. I will have $100,000 in the account by the end of 2021. I am self-employed, so this amount represents 12 months living and six months business expenses. Yay! There's the applause. Yay! Yippee! Now, wait, ready? Yeah. I'm going to slap her on the wrist. No. After. Wait, wait, wait. Ready? <laughs> Question. <laughs> I fully fund all of my retirement accounts, and I'm on track to stop working full-time in four years at the age of 67. I have an advisor and extra money over and above my savings and my retirement accounts, but I can't seem to work up the courage to try my hand at investing on my own. I just want to learn how to analyze, invest, and understand the reasons why my investment advisor chooses the stocks that she does. Now, ready for this? I feel as though I'm bothering her to ask her and wonder where I should start on my own. <laughs> ready, Susie? I'm taking 5000 or so on my own, and I just purchased um, 5000 of the I-bonds the other day, and it Fabulous. felt pretty good. Fabulous. How much education should I expect my advisor to offer me? I can't believe she's asking this. I pay her 1% of the balance per annum, and I'm invested at Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade. Here's the thing, Margaret. I don't know if it's just you and where you just feel intimidated and you feel like you always bother everybody if you ask them a question. Maybe you feel that way. And so you're, you're putting that on your advisor or if your advisor has done something that has made you feel that way in terms of you've asked her maybe a question before and she just wrote it off. 
However, it's now time for you to find out which one of those two things it happens to be. So you're to call her and you're to say, I would like 30 minutes of your time so that I can go through my portfolio with you for you to explain to me why you bought every single stock that you purchased for me. What are your plans for that stock? Do you have a target price of when you would sell it? Do you plan to accumulate more? What is the reason why you purchased each and every one of the stocks that are in my portfolio? Through those answers, without you then having to say, can you teach me everything that you know? You then will start learning why your advisor chose the individual stocks that she chose. Now, I'm just going to say this for everybody. If, Margaret, you talk to your advisor and she didn't purchase individual stocks, she purchased individual mutual funds. So you have a mutual fund, you have an exchange traded fund, you have a whole bunch of mutual funds and exchange traded funds in your portfolio. Then I would start to question why in the world then are you paying her 1% to do what? You could easily put all your money in the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, and I'm sure you would have done equally as well, or if not more so than what she did, if it's in all these different accounts, because you wouldn't have to do what? Pay that 1% fee to her. So number one, you need to know, what does that 1% fee cover? Why are you paying her that? And the reason you would be paying her that is for her to select individual stocks for you, not exchange traded funds that you could easily do on your own. Also, I just, I know this is a long answer, but it's an important one. That 1% should also never cover money that's invested in bonds. If you have money invested in bonds, that should be in a separate account that does not come under an investment advisory fee. The only thing you should pay an investment advisory fee for is money that's invested in stocks, period. Got that? But try that out, Margaret, and see how that works. And congratulations on Alliant. Good for you. I'm going to tell them, good for you. That's like yeah. a really impressive. Yeah, they just want a super, serious super. accolade and a re award about being the best of the best. So yeah, congratulations, Alliant. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, Margaret. Okay, this is from Rose, Susie. I have a dilemma and would love to hear your opinion. Should we pay off our mortgage of about 135000 at 3.6% or should we refinance it at a lower rate? As it is, we have about 16 years left as we pay extra each month. So we have about 280000 in an HYSA paying a whoopee 0.40% interest. Half of this money is intended to pay off the mortgage. Should we decide to do so? The other half is our emergency fund. The reason we haven't paid it off yet is because we thought we'd be moving back to our home state, but in New Hampshire, by the way, but this hasn't happened yet, maybe in the next two to five years. So they have a big concern. They're afraid to pay off the mortgage. And if the house, the house prices go down and they need to sell, if they decide to go back to their home state, would they be at a disadvantage with no cash to put down for another mortgage or, in, or buy a new home? What was the other half of that money cash for? 
emergency fund. Emergency funds. Mm-hmm. All right. So, first and, of all, and also it has their ages. They're near retirement. Yeah, they're sixty-three in retirement. and sixty-five. Yeah. What is the goal of money? To feel secure, everybody. What is the goal of money? What is the goal of money? What is the goal of money? And as you heard Miss Travis say, it's for you to feel secure. So before, my dear Rose, you even think about what is the best thing to do with money. It's what is the best thing for you to do with your money that would make you feel secure? Because if something happened to you, you're 63, you're 65, one of you has a heart attack, one of you something, you never know what can happen, especially starting at these ages seriously, then you still would be responsible for that monthly mortgage payment. And whether the markets go down or whether they go up doesn't matter. And let me tell you why. If I were you, I would absolutely take $135,000 and pay off that mortgage. If you happen to refinance it, what are you going to do? You're going to save 1% and you're going to have closing costs and you're thinking you might want to sell it in two to five years. You'll never catch up on the closing costs by what you save. So no, you should not do that. So I would take $135,000 and I would pay off the mortgage. At the exact same time, however, I would also apply for a home equity line of credit while you're still working and everything is great. Now, the reason that I would do that is that that then makes it so that you don't have to worry. If all of a sudden the price of your home goes down, you now want to move, but yet you don't have this extra money because maybe you still want to keep the money you have in an emergency fund just like it is. So now you can take out the equity that's in your home at that point in time without you having to pay interest on it for the next two to five years. Did that make sense to you? So bottom line is take the money, pay off the mortgage completely, and then take your emergency fund. And if I were you, I would transfer it to the Alliant Credit Union and get a higher interest rate than you're getting right now. So go to myalliant.com dot com. That's how you should do it. Go on. Okay. Next question is from Mike. And Susie, this question really just requires for you to explain what a SEP 72T is. Ready? <laughs> so Mike. How does he even know I know? Okay, go on. Well, you know everything. Oh, don't I'm think currently, that. I'm currently 55. My spouse is 58 thinking about retiring early, but we'll probably just work three days a week. We just want to spend some of the money before we're too old to enjoy it. We got to tell him this too old business is, 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 it's, (laughs) you're wrong. Susie and I are really much older than you, Mike, and we really have fun (laughs) and still love to save. And if I were 100%, which I'm not yet, but I will be, oh my God, the things we would be doing right now, I can't even Oh my God, so all I can do is dream about business it. business is wrong. But anyway, let's answer his question. I'm currently looking into the idea of a SEP 72T. I currently have, ready Susie, 99% of my wealth in 401 SEP or IRAs. I'm having trouble finding the details on this process and I have a few questions. So I think first you should explain yes, what this I'm actually SEP- an expert on this, KT. I don't know if you know that. Because when I was 
the um, advisor for Pacific Gas and Electric for all the people that were doing early retirement. I was the only one who really understood how 72T and separate equal periodic so payments I never work. heard of the 72T, yeah. so explain so, to everyone right. what it is. So first of all, as you know, when you have money in a retirement account other than a Roth IRA, but in a retirement account in general, you cannot touch that money before the age of 59 and a half without incurring a 10% penalty. If it's a traditional 401k, IRA, SEP, which means Simplified Employee Pension Plan, which means you're an individual, you know, you're, you're your own owner of it and all of that, then obviously you're going to pay income taxes on it no matter what. But if you take it out before the age of 59 and a half, in most cases, you pay a 10% penalty. During the years of early retirement, quite a few years ago, this was starting in the 90s, actually, there was a law that was passed called 72T of the IRS tax code. And essentially what that said was two things. Listen very closely. If you work for a company that has a 401k, a 403b, a thrift savings plan, an employer-sponsored plan, not an IRA, not a SEP IRA, not a simple IRA, but it's with your company, an employer-sponsored plan, and it was all pre-tax, that if you leave service in the year that you turn 55 or older at that point in time, you can take any amount of money that you want from your 401k, 403b, or TSP and not have to pay the 10% penalty. But that is only true for money that is in an employer-sponsored plan. That is not true for money that is in an IRA or other individual accounts. So we have that, got that everybody? If however, you have an IRA, a SEP IRA, a simple IRA, then 72T says, if you take out separate but equal payments every single month, regardless of your age, if you're before 59 and a half, then you no longer have to pay that 10% penalty. But it is very, very tricky. There are three ways to calculate it, and you need to sit down with a CPA. But if you took out $13,000 one year, $15,000 another year, $20,000 another year, you now are in violation of separate but equal periodic payments because you did not take out equal payments every single year, and you are going to be slapped with the 10% penalty. So at your age of 55 and 58, I would definitely not start separate and equal periodic payments for your spouse at 58. Let them wait a year and a half and just take out that money without having to do this. And at 55, you could do this with money that's in a retirement account at an at your employers, if you want to, in any amount you want. It doesn't have to be separate and equal. It can just be one year you can take out 10000 another year 15000 which is why it's so great if you keep money at your old employers to do that with. 
However, I would not do separate and equal periodic payments within an IRA, a SEP IRA, or anything else you have. It's far more complicated than you have any idea. And that is not how I would access that money. I would wait till I was at least 59 and a half years of age to do so. All right, Katie, here we go. Quizzy time for you. I'm a little rusty. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you are. (laughs) I haven't haven't been here in the studio for a while now, so I'm a little little rusty. Yeah, there we go. Okay. All right, so everybody, this is where I ask Katie a question, and now Katie has to answer it, but I want all of you to play along as well, because These are all questions that I choose that every one of you should know the answer to. So with that said, here we go. Amy writes, thank you for an amazing podcast. I bought a $10,000 I-bomb on October 25th, and then on November 1st, the interest doubled for new I-bonds. Does this mean that I am locked in at the low interest rate for the next five years? I'm so sad. This was my first foray into an investment like this. So the question is, is Amy, because she bought into the I-bond before interest rates changed, even though I tried to tell all of you to wait till November 1st, but anyway, that's all right, right? Um, Is she locked in for five years? Well, you just (laughs) told everyone to wait till November 1st. So I guess she is. Is that your answer? I guess she is locked in. (coughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't say that was my answer. That's too late because we're running late on this podcast. All right, Amy, KT, and everybody else, this is what you need to understand. An I-bond, a series I-bond, resets its interest rate every November 1st and May 1st for every six months. But that interest rate is only locked in for six months. So your 3.54%, which is nothing to sneeze at, my love, is locked in for six months. But on May 1st, of next year, party it, time. It will change to 7.12%. So if you had waited till November 1st, you would have gotten the 7.12 for these next six months. But all right, it's not that big of a deal. You just wait until May 1st and you'll see you get the higher interest rate. So everybody remember on series I bonds, which are inflation bonds and are the topic of Sunday's Susie School. It is very important that you understand that the interest rate is not locked in for five years. What's locked in is that during the first year, you cannot touch this money no matter what. From year two to five, you can withdraw it but you will be penalized a three-month interest penalty. That's all. After five years, you can take out any money you want, but you will pay income tax on it on the federal level, but not the state. So don't be sad, my dear Amy. You did just fine. No big deal. But it's really important that you listen to Sunday's podcast again, because I'll give you an advice on 
When did it make sense that you should have purchased before the November and the May 1st dates? And when does it not make sense to purchase before that time? All right. We've gone a little long. We've gone long, but you also have to listen to something else on Sunday. Yes. Tell them what that is. We're going to tell all of you the names and hopefully where they're from of the winners of the Alliant Credit Union Sweepstakes. Very exciting. Very exciting. So take a listen and then you'll know who won. Yeah, All right, everybody. In. All right. So until Sunday, there's really only one thing that we want for all of you, and that is for you to remain what, KT? Remain safe. Remain strong. And most of all, remain secure. secure. See you then. Bye-bye. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman is acting as a certified financial planner, advisor, a certified financial analyst, an economist, CPA, accountant, or lawyer. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman make any recommendations as to any specific securities or investments. All content contained in this podcast is for informational and general purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and financial advisors regarding your particular situation. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman accepts any responsibility for any losses which may arise from accessing or reliance on information in this podcast. And to the fullest extent permitted by law, we exclude all liability for loss, damages, direct or indirect, arising from the use of this information. The must-have documents discussed in this podcast are legal documents created by a lawyer and distributed by Hay House.